John, for the first time since our podcast started in May of 1957, we're not together to do this podcast. Yeah, we are not together, and neither is our guest that we have coming up. I have to thank uh, Jake and Andrew and Anthony for getting us all together and figuring this all out, because as you know, I'm the worst in technology. It is going to be a pleasure to welcome A.J. Preller, a, a young man, I call, still call him young, that I knew from when he was 20 years old at Cornell, and he has made quite a name for himself, and he is still the man of the hour with all those big trades. So really looking forward to that discussion today. Yeah, we'll talk to him about the biggest trade maybe in baseball history. John, you and I will also talk about the Yankees and Mets. They're similar records, but different directions. We'll be doing that all on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. John, as we're recording this, the New York Yankees and the New York Mets have the same record. They're both 71 and 39, but not all 71 and 39 are created equal. At this moment, we probably feel a little differently about the two teams. The Yankees, after a historic, to some degree, first half are going the wrong way. The Mets are soaring to their 71 and 39. I wonder what you think about where the New York teams are at right now. Yeah, I mean, the, the Mets look like they're in fantastic shape right now. I mean, we've checked in on the two teams periodically, and uh, generally uh, the Yankees have been well ahead, and right now the gap has been closed completely. The Mets have been great. Beating the Braves, I think, was huge for them. Uh, the Yankees have struggled. It's been their starting pitching. The ERA has been around five over the last 26 games. I think they're 10 and 16 in them. I feel like right now you got to have a lot of faith in the Mets. And I still have faith in the Yankees. I still think they're a great team in that upper echelon, but obviously not challenging the 98 team anymore. John, just to double down on your point, since uh, July 3rd, the Mets have the best rotation ERA in the major leagues, 226. The Yankees are 26 at 496. Uh, the difference wow. is stark, and starting pitching had been a Yankee strength. And I just do this again. These numbers change a lot, but Fangraphs odds to win the World Series as we begin this podcast today. Today, the Yankees are fourth at ten point five percent. Houston third, sixteen point one. Dodgers second, sixteen point three. The Mets are first at sixteen point nine. Now, again, those are all pretty bunched, especially Astros, Dodgers, and Mets. But sitting here today, the fan graph method for figuring this out has the Mets as the favorite to win the World Series. Should the Mets be the favorite to win the World Series? No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, I'm sorry to go against New York here for a second, but the Dodgers have been absolutely dominant on both sides of the ball. They've been overall the best pitching, in my opinion, the best hitting, in my opinion, the best run differential easily. They are just as hot as the Mets. I think there is a bias towards starting pitching and people saw what DeGrom did when he came back, and he is obviously the most talented pitcher in baseball. And you've got DeGrom and you've got Scherzer now, probably one and three. If you're going to start your dream rotation, I put Verlander at two. So you got one and three. And I think people are looking at it and saying, you know what? They could dominate a series with those two pitchers. And obviously Bassett and Walker and, and Carrasco have also been very good, but – 
you know, I go back to the Braves. They had the best pitching in baseball basically for a decade. They won one World Series. I do not think that starting pitching means a guarantee to win the World Series or is even more important than the hitting. I think it's equal. I know some people say, oh, pitching is 90% or whatever. I don't see it that way. And I think that's a bit premature. I agree with you because one of the ones I always point out is in 2008, the Phillies win the World Series with Cole Hamels, the number two star is who Joe Blanton or uh, uh, Jamie Moyer. Then they get right. Roy Halladay. Then they get Cliff Lee. Then they get Roy Oswald. They never won it again. They went back the following year, but as they built it up, they, it wasn't there. So you have to have the balance team. Obviously you want to have those starting pitchers. It gives you a great advantage as we saw with the nationals. It also allows you in 2019 to throw them in the bullpen if need be. You know, it's even less true now, though, because in those days, even 2008 and before, starting pitchers would occasionally go eight innings or maybe even nine. Now it's five or six, and certainly we know DeGrom is coming off of an injury or multiple injuries. We're not expecting him to be an eight-inning pitcher. Maybe sure. I don't want to tell Scherzer he's not going to do anything. He may do anything. Who knows? He's amazing. But the fact is the starting pitchers are usually, even the great ones, are six-inning pitchers at this point. So... I think it's even less true now that starting pitching means everything, as they say. And and yet, John, I, I again, as we're talking this evening, for the second time in a week, uh, Luis Castillo and Garrett Cole are going to face each other in a game that did not go well for the Yankees the first time. The history is when the Yankees don't get the starter that they want to pursue the most. Randy Johnson, Verlander, Schilling, Cliff Lee a couple of different times. It ends up usually biting them. Cole, by the way, when he was a pirate and went to the Astros. At this moment, the rotation isn't as strong. They went for the second guy for Frankie Montas instead of Castillo because they clearly didn't want to give up Anthony Volpe. I'm not sure if they win the fight even with Volpe. It seemed that Cincinnati really liked those Seattle prospects. Where where do you think this rotation stands for the Yankees right now as we get into the final third of the season? I mean, the Yankees made a good effort to get Castillo. I, I believe they did offer Peraza and others. Cincinnati just liked what Seattle was offering. Uh, the kid Noel V. Barte, terrific power, also an infielder. Not sure if he's a shortstop. So, I just don't think the Yankees were going to be able to do it. And they went for Montas, who I think is fairly comparable, if you look at their records, to Castillo. So I can't really blame them. The interesting thing to me about the Yankee rotation is the guy we were worried about was Nestor Cortez. He was the journeyman pitcher. Is he going to be able to throw the innings? And we're still a little concerned about the total innings. He's been the best one. Tyone has fallen off a bit. Cole, I mean, he was an all-star, deservedly so, but... He's now fallen off to the point where you're, you know, looking at that overall record. He's clearly not the $324 million pitcher that they were hoping he would be. He does lead the league in strikeouts, but what, you know, in the end, what does that get you? He's not preventing runs. He's giving up a lot of home runs. Um, there is definitely con- a lot of concern about the Yankees, but I think we overdo it. We're over concerned about the Yankees, just like the odds makers are a little maybe too much in love with the Mets at the moment. Yeah, we're all kind of victims of the moment. Uh, The immediacy bias is strong. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday, John, and he's a big Yankee fan, and he was, the walls are falling in, et cetera. And I just said, I just want to remind you. So I went back and looked at it. 1996, they led by 12 on July 28th. It got down to two and a half by September 10th. In 2000, on September 13th, they're up by nine. They end up winning by two and a half. They went three and 15 down the stretch. You know what they have in common? They won the World Series both of those years, collapsing at the end. 
to your point, like we want to say it's starting pitching or you need momentum going into the playoffs. We don't know. The great screenwriter, William Goldman, his famous line is, no one knows anything. That's about like knowing, oh, this script is going to sell or this actor is hot. He will sell it. It's like we try to look at all the information. We use history, but we really don't know. Yeah, like, I mean, there are so many variables right now. I mean, certainly you look at the relief pitching, you're saying Holmes, he's back, he's reverted to what he was in Pittsburgh. He's not that all-star. But now Chapman is coming up, and Chapman may be himself again, too. And, you know, maybe Britain will come back. They've got Loisega back. It's hard to know exactly. Obviously, they lost King, but it's hard to know exactly where that stands right now. And they do have a track record, those starting pitchers. Tyone, if healthy, is a very good pitcher. Cole is one of the best five pitchers in the game if he's on his game. So, I mean, there are a lot of variables there. I do think the offense is great. Judge, clearly the MVP. I know there are a few people who disagree with me. I've been on this forever, just like I was on Otani very early last year. Judge has been incredible. Stanton should come back at some point here soon. Rizzo, obviously, he's been day-to-day. He'll come back with Rizzo, with Stanton. With Judge, best offense in the American League. I mean, this is still a great team. I think people are getting a little too down on them. You know, it was interesting. Our editor, Mark Hale, emailed me, maybe you should do a Yankee column. He was right. I mean, they lost five in a row. People were panicking in the streets. So he was right to do it. So I write it, of course. And then they play a great game last night. We don't know. You're right. You never know. And uh, whatever we write, it's going to be the opposite. That's what I feel like right now. Yeah. You know, it's one of the reasons the Sports Illustrated jinx was the Sports Illustrated jinx, yeah. right? Like if you're, if you're going to write about someone at the peak of when they're hot or the peak of when they're cold, in professional sports, it's very likely to turn around very quickly. Like, oh, we're going to write about the guy who's hitting 410. Well, he's probably not going to hit 410. So now he's going to hit 210 to get to 340. You know, on the lineup, I want to say one thing. Again, we're, we're doing this podcast, John. Last night, Matt Carpenter fractured his foot. He had brought some more lefty diversity, which they needed to the lineup. He had lengthened it, especially when you had Stanton and Rizzo as well. The bottom of that lineup with Kaina Falefa and Hicks, and especially when Higashioka catches, there's a lot of outs at the bottom of the lineup. And Carpenter had helped extend it. I want to bring up three names, if possible. You jump on any of them at any time, because I think they're key. I'll just reiterate on Cole. I agree with you, John. We never know the true path a team is going to take to get to a championship. But to me, the last time the Yankees won a championship in 2009, CeCe Sabathia was great in October, and often pitching on three days rest. And I just don't see how this team could get all the way where it wants to go unless Cole has a dominant October. I think they need Luis Severino to come back and be a starting pitcher in this, probably start game two. They plan on him coming back, I think it's September 12th or 13th against the Red Sox, having four or five starts down the stretch and being ready off the injured list. And to me, one last guy, and I think this is a bit of a Hail Mary now, is Zach Britton, who's only throwing batting practice at this point. You know, because again, who knows what he is when he gets back. But the fact that the bullpen has started to shake a little. Michael King was such an important guy in this bullpen as a Swiss Army knife. Chad Green was such an important guy in this bullpen. And to your point, Holmes is Pittsburgh Pirate Holmes right now. Lois Sig is a little better, but he's still not the guy. I think they could use Britain, who I think who I think we think has great stuff and kind of like that fortitude to be able to pitch in the big moments. Those three guys feel very important to me right now, John. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, Cole obviously is. They didn't pay him the $324 million. If they expect mediocrity, they expect high-level performance. They expect him to be an ace. They expect him to be their Scherzer or their DeGrom. 
whomever, and I think he is the key guy, probably. Severino, we can hope on. You know, he's good when he pitches, but, uh, you know, he's been hit or miss in terms of the health. And in terms of Britain, uh, I agree, he's terrific talent. If he gets back, he's heading toward a year now since Tommy John. If he comes back, he could be huge. He had one of those years like we're seeing with Diaz with the Mets back a few years ago and could have won the Cy Young, didn't I think uh, – that was the year Verlander uh, should have won also and didn't win. Anyway, I, I think Britain is a terrific pitcher. Again, when healthy, a lot of variables, a lot of ifs. I guess that's why they're down at whatever you said, 13% at this point and why the Mets are way up. I do think we we should not forget the Astros and the Dodgers. I mean, we talked. I talked about the Dodgers a little earlier. The Astros, they actually outplayed the Yankees over the last several years, particularly in the playoffs. They outplayed the Mets when they matched up with them. And, you know, we saw what they did with the Yankees in the regular season uh, when they came in and uh, Javier and Urquidy gave up no hits back-to-back. They're four and five starters. I can't get that out of my head. I mean, that was such a strong Well, I think the more important thing, John, is the Yankees can't get the Astros out of their head. Yeah, absolutely. Can I I throw three other names at you? Vogelback, Nate Wynn, and Ruff. It's 88 plate appearances since they showed up. 329 batting average. Over 1,000 OPS, four homers, 16 RBIs. They're walking over 12% of the time. They're striking out less than 20% of the time. We want to think like, wow, Juan Soto, who's getting him? Get the big guys. We'll see what this looks like the rest of August, September, and October. But right now, those three guys were designed to lengthen the lineup. And especially Vogelback and Naquin from the left side have really lengthened the lineup. So, John, I wonder if we'll wrap up this New York, New York uh, first segment of our podcast this way. I always think of August as the truth serum month. Like you've now played four months. You've gone through the trade deadline. We kind of know exactly who your team is, really know who your team is now because there's no waiver trades anymore either. This, This is pretty much your team. Last year, the Mets were 9-19 and in August. They collapsed. They fell out of it. DeGrom was hurt, right? Now they get DeGrom back. Right now, it's a short sample, 7-2, winning percentage in August. That would be the best in their history. I just looked quickly. Here's their other ones. 2015, 7-14, went to the World Series. 2000, 690, went to the World Series. 2000, went to Game 7 of the NLCS. 677, 1969, won one of their two World Series. 656, 1986, won the other World Series. Those are the five best winning percentages in August for the team ever. They might be having one of those August again. And I just wonder, are we seeing a team that, as opposed to recent Met teams, have a depth of talent and fortitude? Because that's what shows up in August. Yeah, I mean, uh, they made it a big point to enhance their depth this winter Signing Mark Canna to a two-year deal, and uh, I mean he's been terrific in that lineup. Very good defensively. Signing Escobar, getting a third baseman. You know Marte. Obviously, they already had a center fielder with Nimmo. They signed another center fielder. Now Marte's been very good and right. Boy, he's a terrific player. I really never saw him on a daily basis before. He's really good. Um, obviously, and you know they made great moves in the winter. I think their moves right now in the summer are looking pretty good. And obviously having that one-two punch of Scherzer and DeGrom is big. And they have depth there, too. I I still, with the Mets, the one concern that I still have, I'm going to give them the lineup. I'm going to say, good job with Vogelback and Ruff (laughs) and Naquin. I'm going to give up that argument. I'm still concerned about the seventh and eighth innings because 
even the great starters generally go six innings now. Obviously, they have the best closer in the game in Diaz and how fantastic he's been with two strikeouts in inning. But I would have still liked to have seen them get a Robertson who went to the Phillies for their 26th best prospect. Yeah, you know, I'm sure the Mets made an offer, but, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly whether teams didn't love their offers or what. But, you know, I would have liked to have seen them gotten get a more proven setup guy. I mean, Adovino has been used a lot. He's been good. You know, he's a good pitcher. May is back now. You know, they've got some options there. But I still, you know, I guess I want everything to be perfect. I feel like they should have done more in terms of the setup situation. Yeah, I think they're actually going to need David Peterson and Tyler McGill, guys who haven't really done it, to step up in their bullpen, be a lefty-righty forces. I think that's for another show. You mentioned the dynamic player, Marte Lindor. On the subject of dynamic players, next on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman, we'll be talking about AJ Preller. We'll be talking with AJ Preller about all the dynamic players he acquired at the trade deadline. John, for the first time since we started doing this podcast, you and I are not together, but we're going to keep the New York theme at least where our guest is a New Yorker as well. It's AJ Preller, the general manager of the San Diego Padres, Long Island's own. AJ, thank you so much uh, for joining us on this show. Uh, We were hoping to have you last week, but I I guess you are catching up on some sleep. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. Looking forward to it. So AJ, uh, obviously we wanted to have you because the trade deadline is such an important moment in our sport every year. And your team, uh, news-wise, dominated uh, this by namely getting Juan Soto, not to mention Josh Bell, Josh Hader, Brandon Drury. I wonder if we could just focus on the big fish there, which is Soto. When did you... Uh, lock in on the thought of getting Soto? And does somebody in your situation essentially say to his owner, the people he's working with, I don't care what we have to do, we're going to get this play? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I think uh, I think Peter Seidler, you know, our, our owner, he, he's joked about it a few times. I think we, we over the last couple of years, every once in a while, we we're involved in, in potentially adding, you know, an impact player to uh, in some trade possibilities the last few years, and we fell short. Uh, we would just joke around, and say, "Yeah, we'll just go get Soto when the time's right or whatever." And stuff. <laughs> and I, I just kind of internal. Don't worry, you know, we'd be disappointed. Don't worry about. It. We'll just go get Soto. Let's go get the best uh, or one of the best, you know, hitters. But. I think I think in terms of last month, yeah, I think when we started seeing some of the reports that um, you know they, they from a dollar standpoint in a, in a long-term deal that that, that it may not happen for 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 one in in Washington, you know, and then obviously when Mike came out and said that uh, you know our antennas went up at that <clears throat> that time, and then when Mike came out and said they were they were going to talk about it, and then he gave me a call right afterwards and just said, hey, you're one of the systems we're gonna we're gonna focus on if if we have interest, and obviously just kind of go step by step and, and eventually able to uh, to make the trade. AJ, I just want to follow up on that a little bit and try to take us through some of the steps. I know there's probably a million ups and downs, ins and outs throughout this. I, I, you know, I can remember when it was reported by Ken Rosenthal that uh, Soto would be available. They weren't able to get a deal done. And then I had a follow up and I followed it up by saying that the Padres were probably in good position to do this. So I think we all kind of thought the same thing, that you were the guy to go do this, to make this bold move. Could you take us through it a little bit step by step? When was the first phone call? What was the key to the deal? When did you realize you had him? I think it was the night before you were closing in. And, you know, what was the biggest hiccup in there, too? Uh, It seemed like uh, you had it figured out, that you had a contingency plan 
uh, assuming a Hosmer would say no, as is his right to go to Washington. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think one of the initial phone calls with Mike, I think he, he kind of laid out the process of what he was going to be looking to do. And I think he told me on that call, he thought there were, you know, five or six teams that they legitimately thought, you know, had the, had this, had the farm system or the players, young, young type, you know, the young players to uh, potentially make this type of deal. And, you know, I think for us, like, you never know when, when you're involved in, in really any trade at, at whatever level, obviously at this level where, you know, all 30 teams would have interest in a player of, of Juan Soto's caliber, you know, you don't know if, if you're going to have the exact deal that's going to line up, et cetera. But I could tell early on, I mean, we have really good evaluators in our, in our system. Um, and, and we, and I think from, you know, the quality that, that we think of the players that were in our system, that's one thing, but we start having conversations with other teams they tell you and the industry will tell you what they think of your players. And I think pretty, pretty early the Nat, the national scouts were going through our system. Um, and you could tell from some of the tone with the conversation of Mike that we were going to be one of the final teams if we wanted to participate. And you never know if, if you're going to be the team, you know, it's like anything else. There's going to be, you know, two or three teams that all have really strong packages, but we knew we'd be in a position to make this kind of deal. And there was just a lot of debate and discussion for us over the few weeks about what, what's the right thing to do, who are the right players to give up. And obviously it's not just it's not just one player, you're not just going after Juan Soto. There's a whole, you know, a bunch of different options that we weighed out and you know that was that was all part of the last couple of weeks for us. I don't know, know if you'll remember it. I remember it. I was in your office in Arizona during spring training uh, a few years back, and I won't mention the relief pitcher's name. And I asked you a question about losing a relief pitcher. I forget if it was because you had 40-man roster jam, something, some kind of thing. And you kind of looked at me incredulous like these are replaceable players you got to go for the great players like you know don't get locked up on this and it was actually meaningful for me to understand like what really moves the needle in our sport and I just wonder do you feel like with the Dodgers in your division if you're not going to lock in on the great players there's just no way to overtake them yeah, I mean, I think, I think again, it's, it's you know, baseball, each sport's a little bit different. So, obviously, you know, you look in, in the NFL, it feels like if you don't have, a you know, a great quarterback and that's it's hard to win, you look in basketball and, and you know, you can you can be led by, you know, by two or three players. Baseball, you need both. I mean, you need impact and you need, and you need a lot of depth and quality. And, you know, I think from our standpoint, though, you look at the teams that, that win World Series and, you know, it's usually a lot of what, what we would call A-lane type players, you know, around the diamond and, um, you know, each team's got a little bit different formula on how they do it, but ultimately you've got to have elite players and difference makers. And I think for us at the deadline, you know, acquiring a Josh Hader, he hasn't been good. He hasn't been very good. He's been, you know, the best or among the very best at what he does for a bunch of years now. And, you know, and, and with, with, you know, with, and with multiple years on, on some of these guys and the same thing with Juan Soto, I think a big part of that conversation was if we're going to trade the quality and numbers of prospects we traded, you know, do we trade one for a rental? Do we trade one or two for, you know, a good player for two or three years of control? Ultimately, we came down on the side of, you know, hey, if we're going to, if we're going to deal these types of guys, let's go get the best. Let's go get the guy that's been as good as any young hitter or any hitter in the game at 23 years old and, you know, three years of, of, uh, of pennant races, uh, you know, with him. And, you know, again, I think, you know, in any sport, any, any walk of life, you know, you need players to play at an elite level and, and get elite guys and get them together and let them do their thing. And that's all been part of what we've done here the last few years. You know, I, I think you scouted Soto very early as a teenager. I mean, he came up in the major leagues as a 19 year old. So certainly was as a teenager. Can you talk about what you saw then and how close you came as an amateur? I think he, Scott, 1.5 million, if I'm not mistaken, from the Nats. How close you came 
And, you know, people have compared him to Ted Williams. Whenever I do that, I, I get a million emails back that I'm crazy. He's not Ted Williams. Look at his batting average, all that. Where do you think he stands? You obviously loved him as a player from the beginning. Where do you think he stands? And any part of this trade, while you got one of the best two or three players in the game, did any part of this trade give you pause or hurt more than others? People are saying that Wood was kind of the key guy. People comp him to McCovey and that that was the toughest one. But obviously you gave up a lot of talent in this deal. Yeah, I think our history, again, I think I think it just speaks to like when, when you have a good scouting group, you know, sometimes you're scouting for, uh, you know, to sign the player as an amateur, but a lot of times you're building history too. And, and, and it's for down the road as well. And I think this is one of those cases, you know, uh, Chris Kemp and the international group, you know, I think I've said, told the story to a couple of people here in the last few days, but he was number one on Chris's list. And we, you know, I think we thought we potentially might line up with, uh, to make him a, a Padre as an amateur. You know, he came, he actually came to Grand Canyon University uh, to the States uh, with, with two other players, I think Jason Guzman and Wander Javier, two other kind of like uh, international, some of the top guys in the class that year and put on an absolute show in that workout to the you know the point you're like are these are these are these you know what kind of baseballs are these are hitting because he was hitting <laughs> balls a long way for a for a 16 year old and then uh uh some genius i think i said which is me basically we started talking about at the time another cuban player yohan moncada had become available and we made yohan uh, the number one guy in our list or i did and, and Juan number two and uh johnny depuglia and, and the nats did a great job and they ended up going in and, and eventually signing Juan as we were pursuing uh yohan so again but i think what that process did we got around him a lot we knew him well i think it gave us more confidence here now six or seven years later obviously you go on to see what he's done doesn't take you know any kind of super scout to see what, what he's done on the field but I think just having that, you know, knowing the family, knowing him as a, as a young kid from Chris Camp, Alvin Duran, our group, I think all that plays into the decision, you know, in terms of of, uh, of what we did. And then in terms of the level player, he's an offensive force. And, and, I, and, and I think from our standpoint, you know, you know, feel like he's he's a guy that that's, you know, that has the ability to contribute both ways offensively and defensively. But he's an on-base machine. You know, he does damage and it's a presence. And he makes, you know, his at-bats are fun to watch. You know, as a fan, you want to see – you know, the compete and the the way he goes about it, you know, it's very unique. And I think for all those factors, you know, we looked at it as a guy that you know, obviously we feel like we, were, we wanted to give up a lot. And from a system standpoint, we gave up a lot. And I don't think there's one player that we look at. And I think that was the hard part of the deal for us is each one of those guys, like we like quite a bit and to give them all up together. And in this type of deal, that was a, that was a gut check, you know, that was, that was kind of the, the gut wrenching part. And then, and, and, uh, you know, and then and, and the tough part, but we just kept coming back to ultimately we're getting a 23 year old player that's done at the highest level. He's a world champion. He's won and he's been in the middle of the lineup and you need that if you're going to win World Series. AJ, you mentioned it's a gut wrenching punch, but at a time in the game's history when nobody wants to trade these kind of prospects one at a time, two at a time. Your willingness to do this does stand out. Do you think you're in a lane by yourself? And if so, why? I mean, everybody understands like, you know, again, like the value of just the value of good players, you know, I mean, so and then obviously the value of, of good players, if they're they're young in their career and they're not making a lot of money, that enables you to do a lot of other things. So we understand that. We're not blind to that. That's that's a huge part of our conversations, you know, like over the last every day, honestly, like as, as we as you go to build a team and a roster. But ultimately, you know, I think you got to look at moment in time. You got to look at where we're at. You got to look at, you know, hey, what where you're at from a competitive window standpoint. And a big part of it, again, if if he was a, you know, if it was an older player or maybe a guy that, that we had three months of or even a year and a half of, 
it's a different price point. But I think for us, it just lined up, you know, uh, kind of the type of player is the style, what he brings to the lineup, his age, some past history. I think all of those things lined up for us in, in that, you know, it's not a philosophical thing or anything like that. You know, I think, uh, I think from our standpoint, each, each situation is unique. We look at it that way. And in this one, we evaluate it to feel like, yeah, this was a deal we wanted to, we wanted to pursue and try to make. During the middle of all your negotiations, I think I went to uh, City Field and really to see you. And uh, I think you're, uh, Josh Stein was with you at the time, and I, I saw you. And I think I said something like, oh, I hear the Cardinals are really uh, in the mix here or something like that. You didn't. I don't remember your response, but you seemed confident all along. Did, did you feel all along you had a good chance? And was there some point at which there was a hiccup or a point where you gave, gave it a pause? And I also, I know this is a many-part question. We're, we're really into this this trade because you know, not often do we see a 23-year-old superstar traded. Just does not happen. At the end, was there, you know, was there any thought that, you know, maybe we won't get this done at all? Or did you did you feel pretty confident all, all along the way? We, we know we have good players, you know, in the system. And you could tell just from the reaction of other teams too, not just in the Soto deal. And we were able to make other trades. Uh, that we had a deep system and it was w- with a lot of quality. So I think when you do that, you're at least in the game all the time. I don't think you really ever know if you're gonna if you're gonna make the deals. You know, there's there's some years where we go through trade periods and and just don't line up and it doesn't get to the, you know, the, to the line that that we put and the value component that we put on a deal. So I think in this case, we didn't worry too much about what other teams. We knew other teams were were gonna put good packages in play. And from our standpoint, our focus just on our own system, what we needed to do, and. Yeah, we were. There was constant other conversation with other teams and trying to line up other potential deals because you can't, you know, you're not going to put all your eggs in this basket because it's really hard to complete these deals. And you know, I think from from that standpoint, yeah, there were there were moments in the in the in the last you know the week before there were moments in the days before there. It's like I'm not really sure that this is going to get done, but ultimately, I think we felt like you know we were going to have a chance if we wanted to do something. They were Mike Rizzo's pretty, you know, he's straightforward and. You know, in terms of like in a lot of this stuff, he was pretty clear on, hey, this is what the type of deal it would take. We tried a lot of different combinations and, and there were different possibilities. And even at the end, you know, in the inclusion of, uh, you know, of Josh Bell and then uh, the inclusion of Eric Hosmer and you know, having some contingencies there. I think those were all different variations. And we went through a bunch of those as we were trying to complete the deal over the over the last week, honestly. My, my last thought on this is, is there a moment, though, I understand your doubt. Like you can't ever know what's going on completely in another team's shop, in their war room, what they're saying. But do you have a moment either with ownership, your key core of lieutenants, where you say, I'm getting this player. Like my willingness to do, to John's point, one of the biggest trades, maybe the biggest trades in the history of the game. I'm getting, is there a, I'm getting this player moment. I'm not letting anything stand in the way of getting this done. No, I mean, I think, I think for us, it's, it's, it's honestly, it wasn't like, hey, we're we're gonna do this no matter what. That that never kind of came <laughs> into play. I think it's, I think it's like you got to be realistic. I mean, we sit in the room and you go, hey, if we're gonna talk about two of these players, you're just not getting the player, you know. So let's not even have the conversation. Let's focus on something else and not waste our time, you know. I mean, there's gonna be other teams that are gonna be willing to do more than that, and you know, and the Nats eventually they're they're, they're just not gonna make that type of trade. So it's like, let's start talking about, hey, is it is it three of this group? Is it four of this group? Is it two of this group and two of another group? Let's know our own. Let's evaluate our own, um, you know, and then again, like, let's be let's be aware of what the other options are. And I think sometimes, you know, again, like obviously when you're aggressive in a period like this, 
is a real process that we go through. You know, it's it's ton, it's it's honestly like hundreds of hours of conversations that go into the whole deal. But at the end, you have to decide, like you know, like do you want to do this or not? You know, and I think from that standpoint, you know, that's kind of the gut check at the end is when when the Nats kind of put it on you, and it's like, hey, this five or six player package gets it done. You know, you, you go look, you, that's when you come back into the room with your small group of, of you know, of people and then eventually with Peter Seidler, you're like it's on the table if we want to do this, you know? So, and if we don't do it, you know, ultimately we got to live with the fact that, hey, he may go elsewhere, you know, and that's, and that's a real thing. So at the end of the day, you have to make that decision and ultimately that falls on me. And, you know, I think that that was more of the mindset was like, let's be realistic, let's do our work. But then ultimately, at the very end, you got to make a call, and 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 obviously, I made that call. Yeah, the el- the elsewhere could have been the Dodgers in this case as well as your main competitor. <clears throat> I, I think uh, Joel and I both admire your uh, courage and your willingness to be bold. That's uh, quite interesting. Makes the game very very interesting. I I do want to ask you uh, about Otani. I mean, it's all out there now that they listened to teams and they ultimately decided they didn't want to trade him. My understanding from somebody else was that you guys were really at the top of the list for Otani as well. Did you have a feeling that you had a shot there? Did you ultimately know that it's too difficult for the Angels to actually part ways with this incredible two-way sensation and it was a long shot? And I mean, while you're talking to both teams, did you have ever have a feeling that you you had the prospects to get both trades done and get Otani and Soto? Yeah, those are, you know, those are, those are, uh, there are some incredible conversations internally, you know, when you're talking about just two, you know, you know, A-lane type talents and very unique players. So I think they were, you know, honestly, it's kind of like the, uh, the sports talk radio debates that we're having in our room, you know, it's like, hey, which, which, which one of the two, could you do both? Um, yeah, I think ultimately in that situation, I think the one thing we, we kind of got, got a feel for again was that. You know, if, if they did go down that path, we were going to be in the game and maybe with some different players, too, that, that didn't end up in this deal. So there were some guys that would have, you know, both teams, both teams had interest in. There were some guys that uh, that, that it felt like, um, you know, they, that each team valued a little bit differently. But, you know, at the end of the day, like I think from Perry's standpoint, it became clear. We, we went into both situations kind of like, you know, are we sure? I think with the Nats pretty early on, you could tell they were going to listen and they were going to pursue this deal. With the Angels, it was kind of like, hey, let's 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 kind of consider it, and then ultimately, you know, not really sure if they were going to end up really putting them on the market and making a deal, and and ultimately it didn't go that route, and we were prepared to, to pivot to some other thing. For for a week there, it was some some good spirited debates and fun debates, um, and yeah, I think I felt like again, like I think I think uh, you know these organizations valued our players, but at the end of the day, they were clear, you know, ultimately at the end that they were going to move forward with Otani and. We moved on with, with Soto. AJ, you refer to them as A-lane players. Uh, one of your key A-lane players, Fernando Tatis Jr., has not played yet this year after, I believe, it was left wrist surgery. Can you give us an update on where he is, when you're likely to have him, and what you think he'll mean inserting him into a lineup that now has Soto joining Machado, et cetera? Yeah, so Fernando is in uh, – he's in double A right now on a rehab assignment uh, with the San Antonio team. He's uh, two games into it, and he'll get back out there tonight again. You know, I think from our standpoint, we'll kind of go week to week here at this point because he just hasn't had a spring training. He hasn't played yet, really. So these are his first couple games. 
he's had a chance to, you know, to, to do everything at, from a BP standpoint, a practice standpoint, but just getting back into game shape. That's what, that's what these next, uh, you know, week, week plus is going to be about. And yeah, I think again, like he's uh, an incredibly impactful player and, and extremely exciting. So I think for, for, you know, obviously for us, what he means is from a, you know, on-field performance standpoint, huge, but just for the game of baseball. I mean, having, having, you know, talent like Fernando Tatis, he's just, you know, he's, he's fun. He's, he's must watch TV. And I think getting him back on the field uh, would be, uh, would be enormous for our club i think it's a testament to what our, our players have done and, and as an organization we've, we've you know the quality and depth that we've got in our team to kind of hang in the race without you know without fernando all year long um but having him back in that lineup would be uh would be would be very nice and a huge boost for down the stretch and you know i think you know we've talked about playing him in different spots i think he gives us that flexibility because he's a great athlete and he can move around the field and we'll kind of we'll, we'll lock in on more on that here this week you you say a week week plus does that mean third week in August is kind of a target date for having him on your roster and moving him around. Does that mean while he's down there, is he playing center? Where else is he playing besides shortstop? Yeah. So, so far he's, he's DH one game and played short. Uh, we're also going to take a look in the outfield as well. You know, I think from, from the team standpoint, you know, I think we'll, we'll get into that and, my focus so far, honestly, is just let, let's make sure he's healthy and let's get him some repetition and get him back on the field in game shape. And then, you know, we'll, we'll figure that part of it out here as we go, what's best for our team, what's best for him, um, and kind of go from there. And I think, you know, using the next week or so, take a look in the outfield as well as the infield, and we'll start getting more more locked in on that standpoint. And again, I think we've mapped out the first week, and then uh, we'll just kind of keep taking it. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll legitimately, we'll go week to week and kind of figure out, hey, what's what's the best thing for the next week? Is it in double A, is it in AAA, and eventually – back to San Diego. You, you made another monster trade at the deadline that's been a little bit overlooked because you made one of the biggest trades in history. I mean, but landing Josh Hader, who's been the best closer in the game over the last four or five years, I guess someone could make a case for Diaz at the moment, but over the last four or five years, it has been Hader and Certainly the Milwaukee clubhouse has seemed depressed since that happened. Could you tell us, I mean, it was out there a little bit that he was maybe available, that he, they would talk. Can you tell me how that came about and how quickly that came together? Yeah, I mean, he, he's a guy that we've checked in on the last few years, honestly. And, uh, you know, you know, and then this year went back to Milwaukee and talked about Hader again. I think, again, I think from their standpoint, they, they you know, they're able to get, you know, and in, in, in Rogers and Taylor Rogers are able to get a, you know, that's been one of the, one of the, you know, for us, one of the better closers this year. I struggled in the last month before, before, uh, before we made the move, but Overall, he's he's been one of the best left-handed relievers, really one of the better relievers in the game. So they get him, um, you know, to go with Devin Williams, and you know, we traded two other guys, Asturio Ruiz and, and Robert Castor, that we like in the deal. But I think from our standpoint, again, it's it's the ability to go to get somebody if you're going to win a World Series. Uh, it's somebody that has been the best, and it's a shutdown guy. Obviously, the dominance, the uh, the fastball, the slider. Um, and then more so, again, with another guy from a makeup standpoint, like what we've talked about, like his presence, his personality in the back of a game. He's got tons of playoff experience. He's been there. We know this is going to be a tough, it's going to be a dogfight just to get in the playoffs and then, you know, go through some really good teams in the National League. Um, I think for all those reasons and, and also having him for next year as well, where, where Rogers is a free agent at the end of the year. So I think all of those things for us, you know, we felt like it was, uh, you know, you're going to get the best. Let's go do it. And, you know, the best that's that's uh, that's playoff tested and, you know, has been in a lot of games and, 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 and also, you know, what he does for the rest of our pen, kind of having that true lockdown closer. 
think all those things led us to uh, to try to complete a deal there. Adrian, you mentioned you're in a dogfight to just even make the playoffs. It feels like the National League West is unattainable this year. The Dodgers are just too far away. I'm sure you're doing all this at the owner's understanding, blessing, et cetera, but the payroll is larger than it's ever been. You've had to give up a lot of future collateral to go for it now. What's the pressure on you uh, that your team gets in and does something? I believe the team has only made the playoffs once in the last 15 years. It was in the shortened 2020 season. So that's the only time while you've been the general manager of the team. What's the pressure on you once you do everything you've done as far as big payroll, big prospects moved, and now big expectations? Yeah, I think, uh, again, I think I think everybody in the organization, you know, that, that's the position we want to be in. You know, I think uh, it's a lot more fun to be in this position than the building phase or anything like that. And I think from the time, you know, we've been here, we've, you know, I think it was something Don Welk used to always talk about, one of our, one of, you know, one of our, our top scouts and, and, you know, just a really, really intelligent baseball person, just, you know, person in general. And he always talk about being on the big stage and the, and the big stage is the World Series. And I think that's what we've talked about and not for – Again, it's hard enough to do that one year, but just year in, year out, having a team that uh, that can play into October. And I think we, we set up for the kind of starting in 2016 with, uh, hey, like, you know, we get to 2020, you know, hopefully we built the organization to a point where year in, year out, we can be competitive. And 20, we went to the playoffs for most of last year. We were uh, playing, you know, very good ball and leading a division or a wild card for most of the year and hopefully learn some things. We had some injuries at the end of the year, a lot of injuries, and hopefully we'll learn from that. And then this year, again, like, I think uh, I think this is the position you want to be in. So I think for, for everybody, you know, the idea of pressure, like, we're, you know, we're well, like, we welcome that. It, it makes everybody better. And that's what the best organizations have. You know, it's like there's a high expectation. And that's been cool to see here in San Diego, honestly, where the fans, they're coming out in record numbers and it's because they're excited by the team and they feel like the team has a chance to win the World Series, you know, and that's something that I think uh, it's a position we've, we've, you know, we've put in by design and I think we're all excited by it. And um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a fun position to be in, honestly. You know, we, we mentioned the Dodgers a couple of times. They're obviously the big dog in that division. Uh, I do want to ask you, you know, last year, uh, it seemed like you were right in the middle, at least, of the Scherzer talks and maybe Turner also. How close did you feel like you came to getting Scherzer and maybe Turner? And then, you know, I thought your team ended up underachieving last year by quite a bit. And now this year, you've uh, played well, but not necessarily against the Dodgers. And I think they, you know, obviously your team is much better now than it started the year, but you have lost uh, 17 out of 19 to the Dodgers and been outscored 55 to 18 this year by the Dodgers. On paper, the teams look pretty close to me at this point. Talk to me a little bit about the Dodgers, how close you came last year and how close you feel this to that trade, meaning, and how close uh, you are right now do you think as a team to the Dodgers? Yeah, I think last year at the deadline, yeah, we we, we looked at, you know, Scherzer and Scherzer and Turner, actually. And, um, you know, ultimately, I, you know, I think it's probably more of a question for the Nats, like exactly how close. But, you know, I think there was a moment, I think a few days before the deadline uh, or before they got dealt uh, where, you know, like where, where, you know, it felt like, hey, if we want to do something that ultimately we did not want to do. So, you know, I think it kind of felt like at that point in time, they, they liked what the Dodgers were offering better than, than, uh, than, than the different versions that we presented after that moment. So, you know, and then in terms of, you know, yeah, I think in terms of like from, from a competition standpoint, you know, you've, you've got to, if you're going to, if you're going to be the best team, you've got to, you know, you got to beat the best guys and, and they're, 
they're uh, they're as good as anybody here over the last uh, you know over the last really you know five or six seasons, but definitely in the last three years since we started to get better. And uh, yeah, I think you know ultimately last year I think at one moment we had won six in a row against them, and since that time they've uh, they've basically dominated us. And I think from our standpoint, like we understand, um, you know, we've got I think nine more games left with them this year, um, and then and then hopefully into October we'll see where it goes, but. You know, I think it, it helps you, you know, as, as a group and a team, you play against teams that are that are, you know, they're the best teams in the league. You know, I, I think it's a you know, I think we welcome that. And you know, I think it's a good it's a good measuring stick for us. And we went in there this weekend and they outplayed us, you know, and I think for us, we're honest with that. And I think the biggest key we'll focus on is what do we need to do to make sure that over those next nine games and the rest of the year that, you know, we've got to pick our game up and we've got to be better uh, because, uh, you know, ultimately they, they beat us in every aspect this weekend. And. That doesn't mean going forward that's what's going to happen, but you know, so far at least over the course of the last year, really dating back to midseason of last year, that's been the way it's gone. And I think if uh, if we're going to get to where we need to get to, we've got to make some adjustments and, and do it here over the course of the next over the next month. But I'll ask one final question here, and that is, how did you get here? I mean, I, I met you at the uh, you probably remember at the winter meetings. Maybe you don't. I don't know in Anaheim. Uh, 1999. I think you were a student at Cornell, and I was at Newsday. You obviously followed the New York media very closely. I mean, what, I know you work every day, and you never don't do anything but work except play basketball occasionally. How, how do you think you arrived at this uh, at this spot in life? It's a lot of people want to be the GM of a team. How'd you do it? Yeah, I mean, I think I do remember that very well. And um, yeah, I mean, at that time, I think I was I was just I. Had, I was going to have a job. I had just been hired by by Frank Robinson to go work at the commissioner's office. So I, I went to the winter meetings and I'd done that a couple of years in a row, really just to pick the brains of, of people that were working in the industry. And, you know, I think at that time, maybe, you know, some of the, there were not a lot of lobby goers at the time, you know, people that were looking for jobs and job seekers. So, you know, I was always, though, from the day from growing up, I, you know, tried to play the game and then, you know, knew if I couldn't play at the professional level, I wanted to somehow work in it. And, Honestly, growing up in New York, I'm not just saying this, what you guys hear on the, on the, on the, you know, on this podcast, like it was, it's baseball crazy. And like to, you know, like it was baseball in, you know, in December and, you know, in January and the hot stove league. And I just loved it and threw myself into it and really reading, you know, Joel and John and Tom Verducci and on and on and on. You know, that built, you know, that, that, that kind of contributed to maybe some knowledge, you know, and, uh, and definitely like a lot of love and passion for the game. And, you know, I think from my standpoint, it's hard to get your foot in the door. You know, to me, if I was a, if it didn't matter if I was not going to get paid or I had to pay you to try to work in baseball, <laughs> I was interested in that. I got lucky to get opportunity, you know, in the Arizona Fall League with Steve Cobb and Frank Robinson. And then Frank had an opportunity to go to the commissioner's office, brought me there. And then like anything, that just led to other opportunities. Once you get your foot in the door, I guess if people feel like you, you may be able to have a little value or help or you're eager to learn, you know, that may lead to other opportunities. So eventually I ended up with the Dodgers and was around some, some great scouting group and some great baseball minds. And then with the Rangers for 10 years, actually, you know, uh, helping to run, run a scouting and development and, and major league operation. And uh, that kind of led, led me to this opportunity. So it's like anything else, like right place, right time, a little bit, a lot of passion, a lot of like uh, openness to learn and grow. And then you've got to have some success. And, you know, I think in, uh, in Texas, JD, John Daniels and that group we made a lot of mistakes early and uh, probably, probably maybe they should have gone a different direction. And Mr. Hicks and ownership stuck with JD and our group. And then we did a lot of winning after that. And it was a lot of fun and learned a lot. And that led to this opportunity. So I think that meeting John in Anaheim changed my life is what I'm saying. <laughs> and, uh, I, don't think so. I, always, I always think back to it, but yeah, 
it's been a lot of things that have happened since then, for sure. Yeah, well, we don't want to bury the lead. Uh, you know, you kids, if you, you grow up and you read John and me, uh, our, our work, you could grow up to make the biggest trade in the history of baseball. <laughs> no, I don't think so. uh, AJ, thank you so much for uh, taking us thank through you. that trade and everything else. Best of luck the rest of the season. And really, thank you again for joining the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. All right, appreciate it. Thank you, guys. John, A.J. Preller took us down a lot of roads there, especially the roads explaining how the Juan Soto trade went down. I wonder what stuck with you the most from that that conversation. Well, what was interesting to me was to hear him talk about Otani and how they made a big effort there and they wanted different prospects for Otani. So I got the, maybe I'm reading between the lines, I got the idea they felt like they could have done both Otani and Soto, if given the opportunity, ultimately the Angels did not want to trade Otani, so that didn't come to fruition. We're not surprised that Padres did land Soto because AJ is that kind of guy. Well, John, I think we got our podcast for about the third week in November when the Padres are actually trying to get Otani again, uh, since I think we probably feel like that's going to be on the docket this offseason, next July. And he let us in and let us know that he had the prospects. And I, I'll just Double down by saying this, John, is I, I think this has been a subject in several of our podcasts, which is the uh, overinflation of prospects and their yes. meaning. We have somebody in charge of baseball operations for a team now who sees that as collateral and not just as what, you know, holding on to it. So he gets praised by Baseball America and Baseball Prospectus. He's out there trying to win, and it's a tough because he's in the Dodgers division and the Dodgers league, and even if you get by them, the Astros sport and the Yankees sport. So I give him credit. He's made the Padres relevant, and that hasn't always been true for the last 50 years. He's been procuring talent for the last two decades, and that's what's got him in this position, that and the fact that he never sleeps. And the fact that he read us both and met you at a winter meeting <laughs> a long time so. ago. <laughs> well, that, that's a lesson for everyone. So thanks for listening to the show, a podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to Jake Brown and Andrew Hartz for producing the show. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. Give us a five-star rating because it helps me and John uh, with our egos. That's on Apple <laughs> and Spotify. You can give us that five-star rating. John's on Twitter, at John Heyman, and so am I, at Joel Sherman, the number one. We'll be back next Tuesday and every Tuesday talking about baseball on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman.